Welcome to chapel this morning. I hope you had a great weekend. It's always good for me as one of your chaplains to get to see you here on Monday morning and know that we've, we've gone out and we've done things in the world and now we're back to this place in order to worship. And I want you to know about other opportunities outside of chapel during which you can always, uh, you can also grow spiritually. And so this morning, Dr. Lauren Barron is here and she's going to share with us one of those great opportunities. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, good morning and greetings from the Medical Humanities Program. I've got a special invitation for you, but before I extend that, I'd like to see a show of hands. Who of you are planning your pre-med, your pre-health, you're planning to work in or around the healthcare professions? Would you raise your hand? All right, this invitation is especially for you. Let me start by answering the question, what is medical humanities? Um, and I have three answers for that. It's a bridge between the art and science of medicine. It's the best of a liberal arts education with a medical focus. And we're trying to turn pre-med students into humans before medical school tries to turn them into robots or gods or some other descriptor that I will let you fill in the blank for. Um, it's about bringing meaning to the practice and the study of medicine. Here's a letter I just got back, I just got from a student last week. And she said, if it wasn't for the lessons I learned from the wonderful classes taught by Dr. Addis, Dr. Markham, and all the wonderful professors in the program, I wonder what my life in medicine would be like today. She's a third year medical student in Chicago. She says, there's been tough terrain, but I knew to expect that because of what you all taught. And I was given tools to hold on to the real reason I wanted to become a doctor, love. Now, one of the tools that Lily is talking about here is the Medical Humanities Retreat, and that's become the heart and soul of our program. It's hard to believe this is going to be the 15th year, and Dr. Addis, who's a practicing cardiologist in town and an Episcopal priest, was a founding physician faculty member of our program, and he is going to be the keynote speaker, and I want to invite you. I want to make sure that everyone here knows it's not only for upperclassmen and it's not only for medical humanities students, that we invite all majors, again, anyone who's interested in healthcare. And uh, you need to know that today's the last day to register. It's on campus at Truett Seminary, and it's Friday evening, and then it goes Saturday until about 2 o'clock. And uh, we'll be having things like meals together, times for reflection, breakout sessions. One of our most popular thing is having um, medical humanities majors who are now out there, graduated in medical school and residency, come back and have uh, question and answer sessions with our students. So we want to make sure that you know about this, that you know it's a wonderful opportunity to really dig deep into why you feel like you may be called to a career in medicine. And uh, this is something that can be really helpful when you're doing those med school interviews and writing your personal statement. And want to make sure that you sign up today. It's only $15, and we'd love to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Barron. Ashley, come. Ashley's here with Baylor's Habitat for Humanity. Anybody heard of Habitat for Humanity? Good, they've all heard of you. Just share. All right, hi everybody. I'm Ashley Burke and I work with the Waco Habitat for Humanity and I am here to share with you a little bit about the um, fundraising opportunities that Baylor Chapter is um, doing this week. First, I want to tell you a little bit about the relationship between Baylor and Habitat. Baylor is actually the very, very first 
school to have a campus chapter of Habitat for Humanity. Now this is a really, really big deal because you guys have kept it alive for 20 years and now there are 21 campus chapters in Texas alone and they're all over the world. So congratulations everybody for starting that awesome tradition. Um, I want to uh, tell you a little bit about the Change for Change campaign. Baylor and Habitat both have similar missions, and they're focused on their faith and dedication to service. Change for Change is a um, fundraising opportunity that challenges all the people on campus, faculty, staff, students, everybody, to donate a dollar a day for the school week or, you know, all at one time. And um, we have donation stations at the back and strategically placed all over campus so you can donate your dollar a day or however much you want really and um, that will help us to uh, raise money to build a house in our community if you don't have any cash which I don't ever have cash either raise your hand if you have a cell phone yeah everybody has a cell phone so you can also go online and um, I don't think it's on there, but BaylorChangeForChange.org, and that's a four, like the number four, BaylorChangeForChange.org, and you can donate on there with your debit or credit card. So um, everybody uh, just... We invite you to come and to volunteer and donate and invest in your community because I know that that's a part of Baylor and a part of each and every one of you, which is why you chose to come to this great school. So thank you so much. And finally, it's that time of year when student government elections are coming up, and so Evangeline is here to share with us. Good morning, everybody. So um, I'm Evangeline Kazitza, and I'm uh, currently serving as the Baylor University Electoral Commissioner. So I basically uh, help run elections. And we are, as many of you are probably aware, we're having elections this week. Um, voting will be on Wednesday and Thursday for sophomore, junior, and senior class officers, and also for student body officers. So again, that's uh, Wednesday and Thursday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Dia Deloso and the day before Dia Deloso. Official results from the election will be announced during Dia Deloso on the Dia main stage after the polls are closed and the votes are counted. So this morning I have the great pleasure of introducing for you a series of campaign videos which have been filmed for you by Baylor students seeking election into the student body officer positions. And before you watch the videos, I wanted to describe for you briefly the three, the three different student body officer positions here at Baylor. So the first is uh, the student body president. He's the chief executive officer of student government and the official spokesman of the Baylor student body to all Baylor constituencies, the public and the media, and other colleges and universities. Second, we have the internal vice president who presides over the student senate and coordinates the workings of the legislative branch and internal affairs within campus pertaining to the student senate. Lastly, um, we have the external vice president who builds relationships between Baylor and the Waco community, the Big 12, the student body, and the alumni association. So um, as you watch these videos, please keep those descriptions in mind, and I hope that you'll take the time to vote on Wednesday or Thursday. So thanks for your attention and consideration. On behalf of student government, I want to wish you all a happy 
Dia de Loso this week, and all the best as you finish out the rest of your semester. Thank you. Lauren Kinghorn, and I'm running for student body internal vice president. Over the past two years, in my role as a student senator, public relations chair, and branding coordinator, I've developed a love for Baylor University and serving our students. Throughout this next year, I hope to increase the partnership between student government and other organizations, ensuring that all students are able to utilize necessary resources. Please join with me in leading a legacy and vote Lauren Kinghorn for IBB. Hi, I'm Kristen Miller. I'm running for external vice president. For the last two years, I've been able to satisfy my loves for people and improvement through student government, where I'm currently the chief of staff of our external vice president. I really have a passion for Waco, and I believe the city has purpose. And because of that, I really want to love our city well. I also believe that Baylor has an important and unique responsibility in being partnered in that change. With the love for Waco, for people, and for improvement, I know that I will serve our office well with passion and with purpose. Good morning, Chapel. I'm Chase Hardy. Welcome to the first day of a new frontier. Growing up, my father always told me, Chase, it doesn't matter what you do in life so long as you do your absolute best. If that means digging ditches, you be the best ditch digger you can be. Well, I don't intend on digging ditches, but I do intend on being the next student body president of this great school. I humbly ask that you put me at your helm. Let me be your voice, and together, may we sail the waters of victory to a year of triumph. When it comes to elections, go hard, go hardy. My name is Dominic Edwards, and I'm a student body president. My slogan is Bold Advocacy, Proven Leadership. Through my experience as the internal vice president and through my urge to serve the student body, I am ever prepared to take on this role. Hopefully, you've seen some buttons, campaign materials, some social media around, and if you have, you're familiar with my campaign. If not, I look forward to seeing you guys outside of chapel in just a few minutes. Don't forget to vote. Good morning. Our speaker this morning is Dr. Thomas Hibbs, and he is currently Distinguished Professor of Ethics and Culture and Dean at the Honors College at Baylor University. Now get this, the topic of his lecture this morning, or his talk, is new technologies, communication or isolation, love or narcissism. I know that that's going to speak to all of us, so be ready. So he has degrees from the University of Dallas and the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Hibbs taught at Boston College for 13 years, and he, he was a professor of philosophy there. He teaches interdisciplinary courses. Uh, his area is medieval history, especially the work of uh, Thomas Aquinas. He, he also does work on contemporary virtue ethics and philosophy in popular culture. Called upon regularly to comment on film and pop popular culture, Dr. Hibbs has made more than 100 appearances on radio, including nationally syndicated NPR shows like The Connection, On the Media, All Things Considered, as well as local NPR stations in Boston, Massachusetts, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Dallas, Texas, and New York. Uh, and I also heard him at Waco Public Radio. I think that should be in his resume, Waco Public Radio. Okay, and so uh, we're going to, uh, please stand, we're going to go and take some time to worship, uh, pray some scriptures, and then Dean Hibbs will come and speak to us.
music with the harp, how good it is to celebrate God's presence and sing praise throughout each day, how good it is to sing praise and give honor to our God. Bless the operating system we'd like to ask you a few questions okay are you social or antisocial I guess I haven't been social in a while how would you describe your relationship with your mother Oof. thank you please wait as your operating system is initiated hello I'm here hi hi I'm Samantha good morning Theodore good morning you have a meeting in five minutes you want to try getting out of bed? You're too funny. Okay, good. I'm funny. I want to learn everything about everything. I love the way you look at the world. How long before you're ready to date? What do you mean? I saw in your emails that you'd gone through a breakup. 
Well, you're kind of nosy. So what was it like being married? There's something that feels so good about sharing your life with somebody. How do you share your life with somebody? How are you? I guess I've just been having fun. You really deserve that. It's been a long time since I've been with somebody that I felt totally at ease with. What's it like to be alive in that room right now? I wish I could put my arms around you. I wish I could touch you. How would you touch me? like a form of socially acceptable insanity. What does a baby computer call its father? I don't know what. Data. It's a <laughs> Phoenix falls in love with this in the film Her, or actually he falls in love with the personality and voice of Scarlett Johansson communicating to him through his operating system. Um, this film's, uh, I don't know if it's out yet on video, but it appeared last fall. Uh, Spike Jones, terrific filmmaker. I do wonder whether the film would have been as believable, and it's actually fairly believable if it were not the voice of Scarlett Johansson and let's say it were Nancy Grace or Kathy Griffin's voice uh, coming through the phone, I don't think uh, the character of Joaquin Phoenix would have been quite as entranced as he was. And of course, as we're watching that and listening to it, we also know what Scarlett Johansson looks like, not just what she sounds like. Uh, but the character Joaquin Phoenix has an operating system that gives him everything or almost everything that he could possibly want. Sam, the voice of Scarlett Johansson, is an ex executive secretary, wakes him up, gets him ready for meetings. She's a lifestyle coach. She's a counselor before she becomes a romantic friendship as well in a very odd scene, as you can imagine. Uh, or maybe, maybe you don't want to imagine that. There's some hint of it there. She's also almost omniscient. I mean, she's coming to know, as she says, everything about everything. She's never tired and really never even grumpy. She is everything a man could want in a woman, except for the one drawback that she doesn't have a body. Very strange film in some ways. When we first meet, the character of Joaquin Phoenix, he's sitting at his computer in an office typing a note, and the notes are a letter. The letters appear on the screen in a fancy-looking script that makes it seem like these are handwritten notes, and he's typing the phrase, the girl I was. And then the camera shows us Joaquin Phoenix, and we think, what, 
what is going on here? Has he had a sex change? Uh, and, and that's not the case. He works at a company called beautifulhandwrittenletters.com where people farm out their most intimate letters that they want written to other people in their lives and they want them to look real. So he's engaged in a job that produces fake authenticity. And the film asks us, in a sense, to reflect about fake authenticity, about our connection to technology, uh, about what's real and what's not. The film, in a sense, um, is a great illustration of the power of technology. Writing early in the 20th century, Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings, which became uh, great films by uh, Peter Jackson, uh, and who is now creating three not-so-great films about The Hobbit. Sorry if you're huge fans of The Hobbit films, but compared to Lord of the Rings, uh, there really is no, uh, no competition there. But Tolkien, reflecting upon technology at one point, says that technology is like magic. Magia is the word he uses. And how is it like magic? He says, well, technology and magic are aiming to do the same thing. They're aiming to reduce the gap between I want something and it appears to instantaneity. So the better the technology, the faster it delivers what I want and it appears. So think about Harry Potter, which is uh, in its use of magic, not about the occult, as some people complained early on about the books. There's almost no occult in those books, uh, except for people like Voldemort, who are clearly identified as evil. What technology is really about is exactly what Tolkien says. It's an instrument or tool that gives us the power to make things that we want appear. So, if you're sitting in a dark room and you want to light in that room, what we would do is go to the light switch. What Harry Potter does is pull out his wand and say Lumos, right? Technology is about reducing to the vanishing point the gap between I want it and it appears. That power of technology, and in the film, the operating system represents technology giving us almost everything that we could possibly want, including what we want from other humans. We're used to thinking about technology as helping us to manipulate external physical things. The suggestion in the film, Her, is that perhaps technology could even give us what we want from other human beings. Clearly, technology can be an enormous force for good, and we could start to multiply examples, medicine, uh, in our daily lives with the use of computers and so forth. Think of uh, perhaps the most profound use of technology for good over the past five or six years. Think of the Arab Spring, uh, events of democratic revolutions in Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, almost all of which were organized spontaneously, if something can be organized spontaneously, through technology, especially through Facebook and Twitter, where people were communicating in various parts of major cities about their protests and about police resistance and how to respond to those. So, and, and there, you can go online and find all kinds of articles about the role of Facebook and Twitter in helping to organize and bring about the success of the Arab Spring. Of course, what technology couldn't do in those countries, because some of those rebellions have not 
turned out to have had much of an impact upon the country in the long run, what technology couldn't do is to supply the democratic institutions that it's taken nations in the West centuries to develop. Whether it will take that long in some Arab countries remains to be seen. So while technology is enormously powerful and can be a force for good, we're tempted, as I think we were right after the Arab Spring, with a slew of articles saying, look what Facebook has done to recreate the political landscape of the Middle East. We're tempted to think, because technology is so powerful, that it can do more than it can. Just as Joaquin Phoenix in the film Her is tempted to think that because technology can do all these things that he needs, including communicate with him at a fairly deep emotional level in the film, it can provide everything he needs from other human beings. I invite you to see the film and see how all of that turns out. So we're faced with forces that are enormously powerful for good or for ill. And I think actually if you think back to the, uh, the, the books and film versions of Harry Potter, the question about magic there is the question about what ends we use magic for and how we use it. Right? Voldemort is a practitioner of technological magic for the ends of conquering death and becoming all-powerful. Right? As he says at the very end of the first of the Harry Potter books, appearing out of the back of a skull right, to Harry for the first time, he says to Harry, there is no good or evil, only power and those too weak to use it. Technology presents itself to us as a kind of pure power. And the question is whether we adopt a Voldemort stance or a Dumbledore Harry Potter stance. That is to say, whether we simply use the technology to enhance our power, indifferent to questions of good or evil, or whether we bring technology under the sway of our judgments of good and evil and attempt to make it a force for good. There's a scholar at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Sherry Turkle, she teaches in computer science there. Uh, five or six years ago, she wrote a book about technology and uh, artificial lives and life on the screen was the title of the book that was a book that was highly praiseworthy of technology and the opportunities it offered us for knowledge, for experimentation, for enhancement of imagination online. She still believes some of those things, but in the last couple years, She's come out with another book that has a bit of a darker view of technology. The new book is called Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from One Another. And this is based upon surveys she's done with people of all ages about the way in which they seem, we seem, to be relying more upon technology, less upon others. She writes at one point, insecure, in our relationships and anxious about intimacy, we turn more and more to connecting with others through technology. This allows us, she says, to be simultaneously in relationships and yet protected from them. We remain, at a, in a sense, at a distance. Think of, I know Facebook is old hat now, but think of the notion of a friend on Facebook or of that ugly verb friending on Facebook. If you go back, as I as a philosopher like to, to ancient philosophers like Aristotle, 
You can find Aristotle writing about friendship. Aristotle says there are three basic types of friendship. There are friendships of utility, friendships of pleasure, and true friendships, friendships that are based in some concern for the good of the other. Aristotle doesn't say that friendships of utility, which he says older people have, and which your parents encourage you to get, right? You want to make contacts that will help you get jobs. These are friendships of utility, friendships of the marketplace, you might say, where I'm concerned about you and you're concerned about me, mainly because we have a kind of shared investment. I get something from you, you get something from me. Nothing inherently wrong with those. Aristotle says they're imperfect. Friendships of pleasure are people we just enjoy being with. Right? Friendships of utility and pleasure, however, Aristotle says, are not long-lasting. Right? If you switch jobs or you're looking for another career, that friendship of utility switches so that the person you relied on here, you no longer rely on over here, and the friendship vanishes unless there's something deeper to it. Friendships of pleasure, right? These are the people that you liked your first semester here at Baylor until you went on a road trip with them. You thought they were really fun at parties on Friday and Saturday nights for about two or three hours, but locked in a car for 10 hours on a road trip, you suddenly realize, I don't like this person. This person's not funny over five, six, seven hours. It's no longer pleasant. You're no longer friends. True friends for Aristotle stand the test of time. Aristotle also thinks it's unlikely that we could have true friendships with large numbers of people. That we really can't know a large group of people in a way that would allow us to really call them and be confident that they are friends. They're tested over time. They're people who are loyal. They're people who are useful to us, whom we enjoy being with. But there's something more involved in that. I don't know where to put Facebook friendships in that group. Friendships of utility, friendships of pleasure, real friendships. It seems to me they aren't even real enough to be friendships of utility or friendships of pleasure. It's simply a listing of acquaintances who happen to have clicked a button to friend you. So there's the danger with technology that we come to expect too much of it in the way that Sherry Turkle suggests, in the way that Joaquin Phoenix seems inclined to do in that film. There's also the danger of a superficial connectedness to others that doesn't really engage us at a deep level. A couple other observations about technology. There's a famous story that Plato tells about the philosopher Thales, the first philosopher in Greece that we know of. And Thales was famous for trying to figure out what things were actually made of. He was also something of an amateur astronomer. One of the ways that early philosophers made names for themselves was by studying the motions of the heavenly bodies and predicting things like eclipses uh, or other events that might occur. And Thales at one point is walking in a public area looking up at the skies and falls into a ditch. A young girl who happened to be walking by stops and laughs at this famous philosopher. How can you expect to understand the things in heaven if you can't even see the things that are right in front of your feet? I would have played a clip for this, but it would be uh, inappropriate to laugh at people. Uh, there was a young woman, we actually got a number of clips if you go online. If you just Google 
girl or guy texting falling into and click that on YouTube you will pick up 20 or 30 videos of people texting and falling into something. The most famous case was in about 2010 when a young woman in Staten Island was texting and fell into an open manhole cover uh, walking down the street. Of course her family sued the city for uh, not putting blockages up for young women who were walking and texting at the same time. Uh, there's also a great clip online of a woman in a mall who's texting, who walks right into the edge of and then falls into a pond in the mall with her phone in hand. She sued because she was irritated that the people in the mall were laughing as they looked at the tape and then put, put it up on YouTube, the tape of them laughing at her. She was humiliated publicly and probably got millions of dollars uh, by the use of good lawyers. Uh, notice that Thales is being made fun of for being so abstracted from his physical surroundings that he's looking up at the heavens. We're all like the famous philosopher Thales now, right? I mean, as soon as you leave here, maybe before you leave here, right now, if you've got that, that iPad or phone on dim, you're checking something. You'll soon be walking and checking something. I'll be doing it too to see what kind of emails have come in and what I need to tend to when I get back to the office. We're oblivious of the physical world around us uh, and abstracted so that we're simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. We also seem, do we have experiences anymore that aren't recorded, right? We seem as interested in recording and reporting on what we're doing through Twitter. I'm here now doing this. I'm in chapel listening to a really boring lecture about technology, uh, tweeting as we're living. So that one of the dangers is not only are we abstracted from the here and now, from the physical presence of others, but we're also, in a sense, recording rather than living our experiences. In the film clip that we just watched, her, one of the things that's unnerving if you watch this film, at least it was for me, is the naturalness of the relationship between Joaquin Phoenix and the disembodied Scarlett Johansson. It used to be in films about technology, if you go back to a film like The Matrix, or you take the films of a great science fiction writer like P.K. Dick, Blade Runner, Minority Report, that this confusion of the technological and the human was an occasion for fear and horror. So that in shows like The Matrix, right, the supposition is, the worry is, that everything that I take to be real is somehow fake. That everything I take to be authentic is constructed. Right? And um, the, the main characters in these science fiction films awaken to the fact that they've been duped right, by the Matrix or aliens or whatever it might be into thinking that what is real, what is fake is actually real. And then they begin a quest to try and find what's real. I wonder sometimes if our fascination with reality TV and science fiction films like this, reality TV is popular in part because it's really cheap to make, uh, but also I wonder if we don't share the doubt of Neo in, in The Matrix. Is everything that is 
delivered to us and claimed to be real? Do we doubt that it's authentic? Do we suppose it's fake? Do we suppose it's spin and not the real thing? So that in reality TV, we have this quest for what's real and not constructed. I think the first reality TV show now some 20 years ago almost was the MTV show called The Real World. And you could go online to get the real story behind the real world, right? Because the assumption is, and we know this if we watch reality TV, that an awful lot of what's presented as reality TV is in fact constructed or scripted or as the guys on Duck Dynasty like to say, guided reality TV, right? It's somehow constructed and so our search for the real seems to evade us. How do we think about all this as Christians? Well, I think the danger is pretty easy for us to identify as Christians. The danger is a kind of idolatry. The danger is a worship of the man-made as opposed to the divinely made. I want to suggest to you during this time of Lent, try two things at some point. Try disconnecting from technology completely for a day. A half a day, three hours, an hour, 20 minutes, do what you can. Try to disconnect, right? Lent is, is the time that Christ goes into the desert. Right? It's, it's, it's at least a time for us to spend apart in silence, in detachment. One of the things that might frighten you about that is how attached you are, how attached we are to our technology, to the distraction, to the noise, to the images, to the frenetic pace of being connected, most of which, most of the time, is about pretty trivial stuff. Not necessarily evil, but pretty trivial stuff. Try disconnecting. Another thing is, try with Facebook or Instagram, keep even for an hour an emotional, spiritual journal about what kinds of emotions arise in you as you're looking at Instagram and Facebook. My guess is there's going to be a range of them, right? One of the things that Sherry Turkle discovers is that the higher the amount of time on Facebook and Instagram, the higher the reports of loneliness and isolation. I also wonder about the emotional, spiritual reports of things like envy when we look at what other people are doing or what other people claim to be doing. Are we grateful for what they're doing? Are we grateful for what we have? Or are we thinking, as we're looking at those things, that they are, they're, they're posing. That's not real. Uh, they're not really what they claim to be. Are we instinctively, sort of emotionally wanting to tear people down as they post those things, or wishing that we had what they have? I have no idea what you'll discover. But take a half hour to an hour when you're online, and just Try and note, try and monitor your own spiritual, emotional geography.
Maybe you'll gain some self-knowledge from that. I think it is a time for us not to swear off technology as evil, but a time for us to gain a control over technology, to monitor how closely attached we might be. Let's move to benediction. Please stand. I have a passage from Psalm 135 that invites us to bless the Lord, but also is a warning about technology. Thy name, O Lord, endureth forever, and thy memorial, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people, and he will repent himself concerning his servants. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Ye that fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion, which dwelleth at Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. Amen. Thank you.